Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The military, as you know, has long relied on GPS, geographic positioning systems, to provide accurate position, navigation, and timing. They call it PNT. Given GPS vulnerabilities, though, agencies across the Defense Department have been pursuing alternative PNT technologies, less dependent on GPS signals. And much of the research falls to the Space Development Agency. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has details. And Anastasia, tell us what's going on here. Yes, so to set the stage, the Army has been leading the way for alternative PNT technologies at the Department of Defense. Basically, the service has an alternate PNT signal, and it can still be received by military GPS user equipment increment to radio chipsets. And once fielded, those chips will be able to use M-code. M-code is military code, and it's a new military signal that is jam-resistant and more secure. But Space Development Agency Director Derek Turnier said that it will take a couple more years to realize that. We're working very closely with the Army, who's been pioneering the Alt-PNT across the Department of Defense. They have a signal that they broadcast out, Alt-PNT, that can be picked up with the next generation being fielded now and to be fielded GPS chips, the MGUI increment 2, right, the uh, M-code GPS user equipment increment 2. And we're working with them to be able to broadcast that same same signal so it can be picked up by existing fielded and planned user equipment so there'll be no modifications. In addition to that, that's a little ways in the future. So that's starting in tranche two and tranche three. We'll be fielding more of that. That was Space Development Agency Director Derek Turnier. All right. And he said now these tranche two transport layer satellites aren't launching for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Does that mean nothing's going to happen in the meantime? Okay, so starting next year, the agency will begin the launch of the Trench 1 transport layer satellites that will carry a navigation message embedded in Link 16 data links. Now, Link My 16, favorite. I know, right? <laughs> Link 16 is an older system. It's been around for decades, and it's not as good as GPS. But Turnier said it still has that capability, and it provides an alternative to the ubiquitous technology, which is very helpful when it comes to military operations. Starting in tranche one and then continuing in tranche two, we are putting a navigation message into Link 16. So Link 16 has been around for the, since the 80s, right, before GPS was, was used in, in combat. Link 16 is what we were going to use for our navigation and timing and during that time before GPS. It still has that capability. You can embed a navigation and timing signal into Link 16, and you can use it for that. It's not nearly as good as GPS, but it does give you an alternate. And we calculate our own position, navigation, and timing on board our satellites independent of GPS just by doing timing transfer between the satellites. Again, Derek Turnier, Space Development Agency Director. Yeah, sounds like back to the future here. You know, we're going to use 80s technology re repurposed for the aughts and the yep. 20s. And so will the Space Development Agency be also making the new user equipment and providing it around? I mean, who's going to make this gear? It's not going to come from Sony. 
Yeah, yeah, good question. So the agency wants to be able to provide the capability without any new user equipment. It's always easier to, and the fastest way to get something out instead of building it. But Turnier said that in the future, it wants to be broadcasting an old PNT signal either over L-band or over S-band, which would require user equipment. But the agency wouldn't be buying that. It would just be working with the services and making sure that they're fielding such terminals and their equipment either before or right after the agency fields a space capability. And by the way, what is the problem with GPS that they want to have this alternative? Just cybersecurity? Is that the basic problem or the fact that Chinese can hack GPS satellites, that kind of thing? Pretty much. The technology is so ubiquitous. It has so many vulnerabilities. And cyber is one of them. So they're not going to stop using GPS. They just want to have this other system in place in case they need it and have to go to it. Precisely. All right. So what's the timeline for all of this, Anastasia? So no timeline as of yet. Turnier said that they're not making any decisions or working out the specifics until 2028, which is when they will begin the launch of Trench 3 and after that, the Trench 4 transport layer. Given the spiral development approach, the agency plans to get 161 satellites into orbit by next year. Right now, the agency is in Trunch Zero. That's the 28 satellites that they launched this year. It will add additional capabilities in Trunch 2. It will build off of Trunch 1. But based on those launches, they will have a better idea of what's to come for the Trunch 3 and Trunch 4 in 2028 and after. The beauty of the spiral development approach, though, is if you look at tranche three and tranche four, I really don't know what's in tranche three and tranche four. Tranche three will launch in September of 2028. It'll be hundreds of satellites. The specifics of those capabilities aren't yet defined, and they're not defined for two reasons. Number one, I don't know exactly what the state of the art of the technology will be in that time frame. And number two, the threats change. And so I want to make sure that, that we can uh, adapt to that threat. So we'll snap the line on what the minimum viable product is for Tranche 3 in about a year. And at that point, then we'll start acquisition for Tranche 3. And then, of course, Tranche 4, we won't know until another couple of years. That's the whole beauty, because then I can adopt what commercial uh, technology is available and fold that into the future tranches, as well as adapt to the current threats. So it sounds like then there will be commercial availability or private sector availability of this new or old capability that's being revived. So maybe we could all have it as the fourth radio in the phone at some point. Yeah, definitely. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And be sure to check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. 
Explain what that is and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week 
and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply. That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? 
Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins. 
who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.